Hey there, podcast listener. Welcome to Talking Wealth, the show where each and every week, the Wealth Within team are on hand to teach you how to become a more confident, competent, and more importantly, profitable trader and investor. For more information, products, services, and detailed show notes, including a transcript for this podcast, head over to wealthwithin.com.au and click on the News and Media tab in the navigation. Hello and welcome to Talking Wealth. I'm Dale Gillen, the Chief Analyst here at Wealth Within, and welcome back to my series on borrowing money, what you need to know. Now, you remember that in episode one, we chatted about lifestyle. We also talked about positive and negative debt, the differences, um, and why it's really important to learn how to understand exactly what debt is. Now, in episode two, we ventured into the rules for borrowing money for investments, and there were three areas that we discussed that everyone needs to consider. And also, we investigated the different aspects of the loan that may increase your risk. Now in part three, well, that's where we discussed the trick with lending was to consistently look to grow the gap between what you owe and what you own as this greatly reduces your risk. Now let's get stuck into part four. Now, the first thing I wanted to discuss with you is capacity. Now, quite simply, capacity is your ability to make loan repayments. Now, out of all the areas, this one area really needs careful consideration prior to entering into any loan agreements. Now, here's the golden rule I live by, and it suggests it might be wise for you to do so as well. Now, in determining your capacity, it's not wise to use all of what the bank will lend you. As a rough guide, only use about 80% of what the bank offers or the lender offers or 80% of your capacity to repay. Now, to help you as a guide, it's best to decide what proportion of your income that you are personally willing to use to fund any loans, regardless of the capacity that a lender may determine for you that you can repay. Now, for example, a lender may say you can repay a $100,000 loan at $1,000 per month. However, you are more comfortable with only paying $500 a month, and so stick with what you're comfortable with. Further, in this example, using the golden rule just mentioned, if the lender will lend you $100,000, then only take a maximum of $80,000. Now, I know for some this will be really hard, as it means not getting that house or that investment property that you might so desire. However, following this rule is far safer and means you won't be dictated to by the banks if interest rates rise, prices fall, or both happens. The critical point to remember here is that you need to consider the future spending needs or your future spending needs that may increase, such as interest payments, okay, children's school fees, insurances, and other living costs that you might have, maintenance, a, the list goes on. What if one or both partners lose their jobs? Can you pay the loan if you're not earning for more than three months? It's all those what-if scenarios that you need to consider. They say, you know, hope for the best but plan for the worst. Now, buying a new home should be a wise decision and not an emotional one. And so whilst emotions are involved, as you need to like where you're going to live, in the end, it really does need to be a financially smart decision. So don't expect the real estate agent, the property developer or the lender tell you not to pay more and entice you with emotive phrases, pictures and dreams of a better lifestyle for you and your family. They all want you to pay more as they seriously make more money the more you pay. Whereas you borrow more, you put yourself under more stress emotionally and financially. Now, buying an investment property or borrowing to invest in shares should always be a logical, well-thought-out process, and so borrow the maximum you can is never wise. Again, you should never take everything that you're offered. 
If the bank offers you $10, then you should take 8 as this leaves you a safety buffer in case things go wrong. While today everything may be running smoothly, time and time and time again we hear stories of people who have over-leveraged and have ended up losing because of the change in their situation or in the economy. And here all I need to do is mention GFC. So many people were over-leveraged by not following the rules that I've just mentioned and lost hundreds of thousands of dollars. And some I've met lost millions of dollars because they were leveraged right up to what the bank would let them do. And they were doing so out of greed because they were putting more into the market that was going up. But when the market changed, they all got caught and they all lost big time. So remember, it's not what's happening now. It's what may happen in the future. And the trick is not to be one of those people where get caught. And that means borrowing well within your means and having that fudge factor so that if something does go wrong or something changes, that you can look after yourself and make sure you're protecting your assets and not forced to sell at the wrong time. Now, let's get into the reward side, I think. Now, let's face it, borrowing to purchase a home you live in uh, is simply and purely a lifestyle choice. It is not an investment. So do not ever think that this purchase is an investment. The fact is that ASIC does not treat property as an asset class and that a person advising on property does not need to hold an AFSL license. And that should tell you something. The reward for owning your home is that you have a home that you can live in. Living a home with your name on a title means you are personally paying the interest to the bank for the privilege of gaining that lifestyle. You're also paying all the other costs with it, such as maintenance, um, insurances, all of those sorts of things. Now, over approximately a 30-year lifespan of a housing loan, the interest and cost you pay to fund that lifestyle is generally equal to the capital gain that you've made on that property. For example, if a property was originally purchased for $250,000 and over 30 years grew to being valued at around half a million dollars, then it's most likely that the interest and cost paid by you out of your bank account will be $250,000 or equal to the original purchase price. Therefore, I like to call any home that you live in where your name is on the title a form of forced savings rather than an investment. On the other hand, the tenant and the taxman will pay the majority for an investment property, which is why this is wise to do. For example, when gearing or borrowing to invest in property, the figures work out something like this. For example, if you purchased a $100,000 house and you had a yearly loan interest of 5.8%, that means there's interest payable of $5,800. Now, at a rental return of 4%, which is slightly high for today, in July 2017, it's somewhere 3 3.5%, but in some areas like Tasmania, you might get 4 But anyway, let's just use 4 uh, 4% out of $100,000 is $4,000. So you've got you've paid out $5,800 in interest. You've got back $4,000 in income from that property, which means you have a gross loss of $1,800. So that's a negatively geared situation, according to the taxman. Now, if your tax is $0.30 cents in the dollar, that means you get $600 back, or one-third of $1,800 in your tax return. So that's pretty good. So that means you're actually out of pocket, $1,200. Remember, $1,800 was the difference between the rental income and the interest you're paying. Um, then you get your $600 tax deduction, which gives us $1,200 that we have to fund out of our own pocket. So you're funding about 1.2% or approximately 20% of the, that loan total, that $5,800 that you have to pay out in interest uh, or that your, your 
interest bill is. So, as I said, you're paying out $1,200 or $100 a month, and that's what you're paying to fund that $100,000 loan. Now, let's assume capital gain is around about 7% on property, and they say property doubles roughly every 10 years, which is roughly 7% per year, uh, using the rule of 72. So, if you had a $100,000 property, it grew by $7,000. You've paid out $1,200. Remember, that's what come out of your pocket, uh, $1,200. So, that's pretty good. So, the example shows that if property you purchase on average achieves that 7% per annum, you effectively made five point. Eight percent, five thousand dollars, being seven thousand dollars that your capital gain was minus the twelve hundred dollars that you paid out of your pocket in that first year, and and as the asset grows in value, so will the amount you make, because the percentage of both capital value and rental yields will increase over time. So that's how it's a pretty simple example of how that actually works. So you're doing quite well here, but what you're seeing here and what we're talking about is the tenants paid four thousand dollars out of five thousand eight hundred dollars in interest. The tax man's given you $600, so that's $4,600 out of $5,800 of expenses. That's what we're talking about. Somebody else is paying most of the money here. Now, of course, there are other cost factors such as maintenance. So whilst this example is you know, pretty much oversimplified, it does show you why it's extremely beneficial to purchase investments with borrowed funds, especially if you're on higher tax bracket. If you're on really low tax brackets, it doesn't quite make as much sense, although you still will get the um, rental return and everything else, you just probably get, so you get less, slightly less tax deductions. Now, um, according to a company called RP Data Historical, the average capital growth in property over the last 30 years is around sort of 8-ish percent, um, depending on where the house is. Now, this figure could be higher or lower, like, for example, Adelaide, um, um, Tasmania, those sorts of areas, you're going to get lower capital growth, whereas some in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane um, have done better over the last few years. Perth has come back a hell of a lot, so it wouldn't get that. So it depends on where the property is. Um, and obviously property tends to run like in three or four years of time and then is flat lines um, generally for a few years. But you get the picture. It's around 7 8% capital gain uh, over 10 years. Now, interest rates at this point in time have never been more affordable. And in fact, they've never been this affordable for about 25 years. Um, and so there's really never been a better time to look at borrowing to invest in either property or using the equity in a property to purchase shares. Now, whether you're borrowing, uh, looking to borrow to invest to buy a home, uh, when you weigh out the risk to the reward in the current low interest rate environments, um, it's an excellent time to get into the market. Now, the last thing I want to discuss in this podcast series is is really you do need to get a very, very good accountant uh, because there's some very smart things that rich people do that the majority don't do, and that's, for example, renting from yourself. Now, I'm not going to go into all of that, but uh, I'll tell you I have done this uh, myself, and it's quite profitable. Um, and whilst what I mean here is that you purchase a property in an entity, such as a family trust or a company name, um, and then you rent from the entity that purchased the home. Now, because your personal name's not on the title, it's another entity, a legal entity, um, and it's renting it out the same. Everything is as an investment property. So here you get all the benefits of an investment property, such as tax deductions, depreciation, and, and you get to live in the house that you've actually bought to another entity. And would it surprise you, um, it really would surprise you what you can do if you just ask the right questions and have a really good accountant working for you. A lot of accountants do tax returns. They're not necessarily good at strategic planning. And so it's not about getting the cheapest tax return, it's getting the best advice. 
Um, and you do need to go to people that do understand investing. If you are interested in being an investor and growing wealth, then pay a bit more to get a really good accountant, who one who will work with you. Um, in fact, I suggest having an accountant that asks you to chat with them every single year so that you can plan out your next few years to grow your wealth and plan your tax strategies because this is really is crucial to your success. Not only investing, but ensuring you, ensuring you manage those borrowings wisely because your accountant will help you with understanding the borrowing side of things and what the best way is to structure loans and everything else. So um, thanks for listening to this podcast series. I really do hope you've enjoyed it and and got a lot of value out of that. Um, um, As always, we're happy to really share our experience and knowledge with you. You've been listening to Talking Wealth and I'm Doug Gillen, the Chief Analyst here at Wealthling. Um, Good luck, good trading. I'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. For more information, products and services, and detailed show notes with a transcript for this podcast, head over to wealthwithin.com.au and click on the News and Media tab in the navigation.